0: Most people think Purim is like a childish holiday, frivolous holiday, people act up, people act silly, masquerade, but nothing could be further than the truth. Actually, the Zohar says that Yom Kippur is Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is like Purim. What's Yom Kippur's claim to fame? It's like Purim. That Purim is even not only equivalent to Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, but it's actually even greater than Yom Kippur. So obviously, Purim is a very serious, serious holiday. But it's a joyful holiday. So, what is the connection between Yom Kippur and Purim? Besides the name, the name. Pur, Pur comes from the word to draw a lot. And on Yom Kippur, they also drew, drew lots. Which goat is going to go, be thrown off the Azazel, and which goat is going to be offered in the temple. But the obvious connection between comparison to Yom Kippur and Purim is quite obvious. They, these are the only two times in Jewish history that the entire Jewish people were threatened with total annihilation. Yom Kippur is when Hashem forgave the Jewish people for the ultimate sin, the sin of the golden calf, and Hashem wanted to wipe out the Jewish people, press the delete button, start all over again. And Purim, Purim, every last Jew was threatened. There was nowhere to run, there was nowhere to hide. In one single day, they were going to be surprised, they were going to be pounced on And annihilated. Every last Jew, Achashverosh was king over the whole entire world. There was nowhere to run. So this was going to be the ultimate solution. And miraculously, on Yom Kippur, Hashem forgave the Jewish people, and on Purim, the Jewish people were saved. So you see the obvious connection. But Purim is even greater than Yom Kippur. Because... Yom Kippur was a time of, of miracles. Hashem took the Jewish people out of Egypt. Ten plagues, the exodus, the splitting of the sea, the, the survival in the desert, the manna, the giving of the Torah, their whole existence was miraculous. And yet, look what happened. Forty days later... The mountain is on fire. 40 days later, Moshe disappears. And this whole inspiration, you know, God wowed the Jewish people. And it says he forced the Jewish people. What do you mean he forced the Jewish people? It means he wowed them. He displayed, he shows such a love for the Jewish people, they couldn't help but love Hashem in return. What happened when the miracle vanished? This whole inspiration vanished with me. It Faded away as if it never existed. Without leaving any impression, they reverted back to their idolatry. They went back to the good old old ways. That the miracle of Purim was actually a very natural. If you read the story of Purim, especially if you lived during this, during this time of Purim, you wouldn't see the miracle. It wasn't an obvious miracle. You know, God didn't split the sea. There was no thunder and lightning. As a matter of fact, the whole event happened over 9 to 12 years. The whole story happened over time. So if you read your, your paper every morning, you wouldn't necessarily connect all the dots. You know, Ashverish celebrates his, his kingship, he his, invites everyone to the party. He gets angry at his wife. What else is new? <laughs> he has her beheaded. Or whatever, he demotes her. Then he's lone- lonely, he regrets his decision, he looks for another wife, finds a beautiful Jewish girl. Mardukai happens to be an adv- one, of the, uh, one of the advisors in the, in the palace. And Haman, you know, the whole story, if you live through it, you wouldn't necessarily, it happened, there was a great many years, one and the other. It's only when the whole story unfolds, when the Megillah unfolds, that you put all, connect all the dots and you realize this is an astounding miracle, how Hashem put everything into place. He got rid of Vashti, Mardukhai, Haman's advice, Marduchai saves the king's life. Esther, and the whole story as it unfolds. And then you see the hand of God. Which is why the Megillah is the only book of the 24 books in the Torah where God's name is not even mentioned once. As a matter of fact, it's called Megillah's Esther. Esther comes from the words, the Talmud says, from being hidden. Because God hid his face. This was in exile. And there were no obvious open miracles. On the contrary, it was a time of tremendous concealment. The Jewish people lost their kingdom. They had no king. They had no land. They were dispersed in all 127 nations of the world. They spoke all the different languages of the world. They were completely dispersed. And they were threatened with total annihilation. And the miracle happened seemingly in a very natural way. The queen intervened. And the king chose the queen over over, over her But when you put all, we connect all the dots. You realize the hand of Hashem. So when a when a Jew sees the hand of Hashem in nature, once you realize that nature that really Hashem works through nature, it's all a miracle. And once you realize the tremendous miracle that happened but it happened in a very natural way, then your connection with Hashem is so much deeper. As the uh, second Lubavitch Rebbe once said, he said, the business person is able to see divine providence, is able to experience Hashem's presence on a more intense level than the greatest rabbi, mystic, and scholar who's immersed, total immersion in holiness. Because in business, when you see The open divine providence, you know, that one in a million chance meeting, you you met the right person at the right time, and everything connects, and everything is successful, and everything goes smoothly. You know, you can't help but see the hand of Hashem. It gives gives you the goosebumps, and you see how Hashem is with you. It hits home. You know, it's one thing when you're immersed in, in, in the spiritual teachings and books, but when you see it in real life, in business, you see the hand of Hashem, you realize how Hashem is with you every step of the way. So the intimacy that the business person feels to Hashem is so much more intimate than the rabbi. So that's like the difference between the era of Yom Kippur, the Jewish people, the first generation of Jews when they left Egypt and Mount Sinai, versus the era of Purim. The era of Yom Kippur was an era of open and obvious miracles. But once the miracles fade, there's no impression. The impression is gone. It fades away. As if it never existed. Forty days later, they were back to square one. But a thousand years later, the Jewish people finally got it. Something clicked inside. They finally received the Torah. As the Talmud says, it says at the end of the Megillah that the Jewish people, kimu they affirmed the Kiblu and they received to, to fulfill the mitzvah of Purim, this holiday of Purim and all the mitzvot associated with Purim. The Talmud says asks, it should have said, first they received and then they affirmed. You don't affirm and then receive. And the Talmud says it's referring to that they affirmed that that they have already received a thousand years before at Mount Sinai. Because at Mount Sinai, God gave the Torah. But the Jewish people didn't really receive the Torah yet. They didn't really internalize the Torah. They didn't really absorb the Torah. And the proof is the golden calf, which is why we needed Yom Kippur. And therefore, that whole thousand-year period, if you read the Tanakh, the prophets, the Jewish people were constantly going back and forth. One generation, they worshipped God. The next generation, they were, they, they were idolatrous until there At some points there were only a handful of Jews who were faithful, literally, while the majority succumbed to idolatry. Until Purim, until the story of Purim happened, we were not sure if the Jewish people could really survive. Because for the first time the Jewish people were exiled. They were crushed. They were dispersed. They had no king. They had no central authority. They had no temple. And this was a question mark hanging over the Jewish people. Could the Jewish people survive? Purim answered that question once and for all. After Purim, there was no longer any question. The Jewish people will survive forever. If they can survive this, they'll survive forever. Because they proved that they finally internalized their Judaism. It's something they carry inside of them. It was no longer a question of idolatry. Because here for an entire year, as the Revi always brings, Hasidus brings, based on some commentaries, not all commentaries, that Haman did give the Jewish people a choice. If the Jewish people would have converted, they would have worshipped, bowed down, worship the idol, bow down to Haman, he wouldn't have touched them. And the Jewish people had that choice. And yet they chose to stick to their Jewishness, proudly knowing that they were in danger life and death. And yet they didn't abandon their, their, their Judaism. And for close to a year, almost a year, the decree, the lot was drawn on Nisan, and they were going to be wiped out the following Adar for the next 11 months they were ready to give up their lives for their Jewishness. It only deepened their connection. It only affirmed, they affirmed their their Jewishness, embraced it wholeheartedly, enthusiastically, lovingly, passionately, and they were ready to die for it. So the Jewish people answered this question mark once and for all. It was no longer a question. Judaism was going to survive. The core, the essence, the Jewish whole is going to survive. Finally, they received the Torah. And they internalized their relationship with Hashem. They've internalized it. And they were able to see Hashem, even the way Hashem works in nature. Yes, there's no overt miracles. But miracles don't happen every day. Overt miracles don't happen every day. If your whole Judaism is based on overt miracles, it's not going to last. In your day-to-day life, as you go about your day-to-day business, how do we know that you've truly truly internalized your relationship with Hashem, you've truly connected relationship with Hashem? When it's more than just highlights and moments, special moments and special experiences, but twenty four seven, this has become your essence, this has become your being. It's not just you're doing Jewish, you're acting Jewish. Your whole being, your whole essence is Jewish. You're completely and totally dedicated to Hashem, completely and totally married to God. It's not something, it's not religion, it's not something that's compartmentalized, it's your essence. This is what happened on Purim. The Jewish people finally got it. It clicked. They reacted. It evoked a response. For the first time in Jewish history, the Jews responded on their own. It was a terrible decree. They had an option. And they chose, and they responded, and responded to- totally, totally response, passionately. This is what Hashem was waiting for. It's like in, when you communicate. A good teacher, how do you know that you're really hitting home? If you don't get any response, you know, then it's just a one-way street. Even if the student hears what you're saying, and can even repeat what you're saying, but if there's no internal response that they respond in their own way, in their own language, in their own then you're not really you haven't finished, you haven't even started. You started, but you haven't really hit home. You haven't started you haven't finished. When do you know that you really hit home? When you evoke a response. That's what happened on Put. God gave the Torah a thousand years ago. But on Purim, the Jewish people finally affirm that, that they've received, they finally got it, something clicked, they received it, they internalized it, they integrated it into their lives. And now we know it's forever. Now we know that Judaism is going to last forever. No matter what God throws to us, no matter what, we could be dispersed and exiles, but we, the core, the essence, it's no longer a question that Judaism is going to survive forever and ever. And it's interesting, although Purim is a weekday, it's not like Yom Kippur, you're not allowed to do work. It's not like Yom Kippur, when you're holy and you're fasting, it's a weekday. You're allowed to work, you're allowed to turn on the light. You celebrate it by eating and drinking and being merry. And yet, Purim is greater than Yom Kippur. On the contrary, the reason why it's you're allowed to eat and drink and, yam, and Purim, it's because it's greater. It's one thing to be godly and to be holy, to be dedicated to God and to godliness. When you're like an angel, when you're like an angel, you're dressed in white. You're not intimate with your wife. You, 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 you're, you're holy. Twenty six hours, you're immersed in holiness. You're not eating. You're not drinking. Then it's easy to be spiritual. It's easy to think about God and to be totally dedicated. And it's also easy to get along with others. When you're an angel, of course you get along with others because you're in synagogue, you're all like angels, you're dressed in white. You know, no one comes to the synagogue with their bank accounts. Everyone, we're all equal, we're all godly, we're all spiritual. So it's, it's easy to connect and to really love your fellow Jew. But what happens when you're not in your daily life, when you're not doing anything ostensibly holy? What happens when you're feasting and you're eating and you're drinking and you're celebrating the bounty that Hashem gave you? Are you then able to connect with another Jew? Are you then able to be like an angel? Are you then able to be able to overcome any differences and distinctions and boundaries in one Jew and the next? To be loving towards your fellow Jew even as you are expressing yourself in your material existence? That's the power of Purim. Purim is superior to Yom Kippur. Because Purim has the ability to be godly even as we go about our daily lives. Even on a weekday. Even when we celebrate materially. Which distinguishes us. Materially we are different from each other. No two people look alike and we're different different levels in life. And yet we're all one. We look out for each other. We look out for our friends. We look out for the poor, those we have no connection with. We invite people to our feast. We break down all the barriers, but to be able to bring out that unity on, on Purim is much deeper it's a much deeper expression of the unity of the Jewish people it's a much deeper expression of the relationship of a Jew to Hashem that even on a weekday a day that's not a holiday and a day that you celebrate you're not like an angel you're human and yet in your humanity there's so much love and goodness and godliness and kindness this is this is the deepest ultimate expression this is only on Purim. Yom Kippur is only like Purim. Purim is superior. How do we celebrate Purim? What are the mitzvot of Purim? What are the mitzvot of Purim? Giving gifts to the poor. Gifts to friends. To, 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 to two poor people, giving exchanging a gift right? Two food items, at least one friend right? And you're the Reading the Megillah and the main thing. Eating and drinking. Eating and drinking. <laughs> Right, Pashis. Joy. Why do we express the holiday, the holiness of Purim through these four mitzvot? Well, actually, it's interesting. None of these mitzvot, per se, are actually anything novel. These mitzvot, when you fulfill these mitzvot, you're actually fulfilling a biblical command. What's the idea of reading the Megillah? Why do we read the Megillah? Which biblical commandment of the 613 mitzvot are we fulfilling when we read the Megillah? We're fulfilling the commandment in the end of Ki Kisetz. There are three commandments in the Torah to remember Amalek, to wipe out Amalek, and not to forget Amalek. Three mitzvot. So we read the Megillah, we're, we're reading about Haman. We're reading, we're commemorating the defeat of Haman how the Jewish people defeated and wiped out Haman, who was Amalek. He was the descendant of Agag, who was the only remnant of Amalek, whom Shol kept alive for one night until Shemuel killed him. And Haman dedicated his life to avenge, avenge the death of his ancestor, of Agag and their nation. So the whole story of the Megillah is really about wiping out Amalek. Which is one of the reasons why the 15th day of Adar. So all those cities that are surrounded by walls, just like Shushan. So all those cities that are surrounded by walls from the times of Joshua. Read the Megillah on the 15th. As we studied in our Megillah class. The first mission of why, why Joshua, the times of Joshua. Why not those cities were walled in from the times when the actual miracle happened in Shushan? And one of the explanations is, and if we do go back in history, why not in the times of Moses? Why Joshua? Because Joshua was the one who wiped out Amalek. His mission was to wipe out Amalek. Even in the times of Moshe, he was the one who fought against Amalek. He was from the the children of, of Rachel, of Rachel, who had the power to fight Amalek. Mardukai was also in Yemen. descendant of Rachel, they have the special power to fight Amalek. So that's why the whole Megillah is associated with Amalek. So that's why we associated it with those cities that were surrounded by a wall from the time of Joshua. So when you read the Megillah, you're actually fulfilling a mitzvah of wiping out Amalek. Of erasing the memory of Amalek. When you give gifts to the poor you're fulfilling a mitzvah of tzedakah the mitzvah in the Torah of tzedakah when you exchange gifts with your, with your friend, and you give a gift to your friend you're fulfilling the mitzvah of love of your fellow Jew like yourself and when you have a meal there's a mitzvah, you have to thank Hashem for the miracles that happened to you so what's a novel about these four mitzvah? when you fulfill them, you're fulfilling a biblical commandment. But yet, here you see, these four mitzvot express what's unique about this whole holiday. The uniqueness of Purim. The holiness of Purim. How on Purim, the Jewish people finally received the Torah. There's a difference if you do the Torah because you're commanded to do the Torah. Or if you do the Torah because you get it it becomes your thing it's more than just a commandment, an obligation a duty it's your thing when you do it because it's a commandment then your obligation is limited even if you're dedicated but it's limited but when you do the mitzvah because it's your thing then it's limitless it's boundless you do it with joy you do it with pleasure and therefore you do the mitzvah in a limitless way. And that's expressed in these four mitzvahs. Yes, it says you have to love your fellow Jew like yourself. It doesn't say anywhere. You have to go, seek him out, give him a gift, just to express your friendship. doesn't say that. So you're doing the mitzvah. Yes, you are fulfilling. By giving Mishlech Manas, you're fulfilling the biblical commandment, love your fellow Jew like yourself. But you're doing it in the most beautiful way. You're doing it not just to fulfill your obligation. You're doing it in the most beautiful way possible. You're, You're seeking to do it. You're looking to do it. You're going out of your way to express your love for your friend by giving him a gift. Yes, the Torah says it's a mitzvah to give tzedakah, but the mitzvah is if a poor man knocks on your door, help him out. Where do they say you have to go looking for him? Go in the streets and go start searching to find the poor person, two poor people, to give them money. So here you're fulfilling the mitzvah, but to show, to express it, you're not fulfilling it out of a sense of duty or obligation. But you're fulfilling it with joy, in a limitless way. In a, that's how you express it, by, by going and looking for the poor person, two poor people and giving them Yes, there's a mitzvah in the Torah to remember Amalek, but the mitzvah is to verbally remember to think about Amalek, even to say it. But to physically write us the Megillah, physically write the Megillah, you express it in action, and to read the Megillah. So to take it, you're doing the mitzvah of Amalek. You're not just fulfilling your obligation, your duty. That by just saying you remember Amalek, you already fulfilled your duty. But here you're taking and you're writing it and a parchment and you're making a whole to-do and you're reading it and with everyone together and you're stamping your feet and you're wiping out a Amalek and you're remembering them. You're showing that you're fulfilling the mitzvah but you're fulfilling it in a way, in a most joyful way without any limitation. And the same is with celebrating the holiday. Yes, every time Hashem does a miracle for us, we celebrate All the holidays. But the celebration is limited. Yes, you have to be joyful. on Sukkot, Pesach, Shavuot, you have to be joyful. But there's a limit to the joy. Only on Purim is there a mitzvah to drink without any limit until you don't know the difference between Mordechai is blessed and Haman is cursed. So to, to a joy that knows no limits, This is this is unique to Purim, and this we saw we saw by the Rebbe and Purim. The Rebbe was always tremendously joyful, unusually joyful, literally without any limit. And and um, you know the Rebbe expressed himself once that Purim is one day a year when a Jew. You forget about yourself. You know, forget about yourself. You, you have to drink so much. You have to be so joyful. Add the layada till you reach a level with la You don't. You're not thinking about yourself. You forget about yourself. You don't know. When you know, there's I and I know. Forget about the I. Forget about the know. There's no I. There's not. Nothing, there's no one to know. There's no I. All there is is. All there is is Hashem. Just celebrate your love for Hashem. Celebrate your relationship with Hashem. Celebrate your love for His Torah. Celebrate your love for your fellow Jew. Without any limits. Forget about yourself. Not only forget about your physical needs, your physical aches and pains, and worries and anxieties. Even forget about your spiritual self. Forget. Forget about yourself. One day, just dedicate. That's the energy of Purim. You have that energy, a special energy that Hashem gives us, that ability for 24 hours, a whole day, it's Yimei Mishta V'simcha, the whole day is a day of feasting and rejoicing. Because even the mitzvah that we do, yes, we only eat and drink at the end of the day. And that's very wise, because if you (laughs) you eat and drink at the beginning of the day, you would never be able to fulfill all the mitzvah. So we wait, Um, that's why it's unusual, usually all the holidays we eat and drink in the beginning, here we wait till the end, make sure we fulfill all obligations, and then now we can say, now we can get drunk, now we can eat and drink and feast and be merry but the truth is the Megillah says that the whole Purim the whole day is a day of feasting and, and joy because even these mitzvot that we're doing are also an expression of this joy an expression of this limitless relationship we have with Hashem when we finally get it when it finally clicks when it finally evokes a response when we finally connect with Hashem on a level that's why Purim is called Pur meaning it's like a, you drew a lot. When you drew a lot, you don't rely on your own mind. Whatever the, whatever the lot will, you throw it into the lot. Whatever the lot happens, whatever happens, happens. It's beyond you. It's out of your control. It's not in my control. I give it over to the lot. Whatever happens, that's what I'm going to follow. So the idea is getting beyond yourself. You have to reach a level where you don't know. There's no I that knows. Knowledge, by definition, there's an I, and I know. So even though when you know, you absorb, you absorb the subject, but there's an I. You reach a level where there's no there's no I that knows. There's no I, there's no knowing. It's, it's, it becomes your whole being. Forget about yourself. 24 hours, just celebrate your relationship with Hashem and don't worry and don't think about yourself and don't think about yourself physically and think about yourself spiritually just this incredible dedication devotion that the Jewish people had have to have to Hashem as the Baal Shem Tov if someone reads the Megillah the Halacha says if you read the Megillah backwards you have not fulfilled the obligation the Baal Shem Tev says what does this Halacha teach us everything in Torah has to teach us how to live, what does this mean? I mean, who's going to read the Megillah backwards? I mean, which fool is going to read the Megillah backwards? From left to right? We read from right to left. So he means, on a deeper level, if you read the Megillah, as if it's something, a story that happened backwards, it happened in the past. Not something that's happening today, but it's something that's happening in the past. And then also the Megillah is backwards, because the end of the Megillah happened closer to us. You work your way back to the beginning of the Megillah because the end of the Megillah happens closer. If you, if you look at the Megillah as some historical, interesting story, then you miss the whole point. You have not fulfilled the obligation. When a Jew reads the Megillah, you have to relive it. Hayamim nisgardim. you relive it, you re-experience it, and then menasim, then all the original godly revelations that the Jewish people experienced, the miracles that came about as a result of the godly revelation, happens again every single year. The word in Hebrew for year, Shana, means Shana, it repeats itself. It's not just something in the past, it's happening today, it's happening right now. So just like the incredible dedication and devotion of the Yidin in the time of Purim evoked this tremendous response from Hashem, this tremendous revelation of Purim. So every year, the energy of Purim is that a Jew, for 24 hours, a Jew has the ability... To re experience a total dedication to Hashem, till you reach a level, Adla You don't know, there's no I that knows, forget about yourself. All there is is Hashem and your dedication to Hashem and your dedication to the Torah and your dedication to, to another Jew without any limitation. Now there's a very interesting Gemara, very interesting piece in the, in the Talmud with that the, the Gemara discusses the mitzvah of drinking and Purim. There's a mitzvah to drink and Purim until you don't know the difference between Mardukai is blessed and Haman is cursed. And the Gemara tells a story. You may have heard the story that Rabba invited his friend, his colleague, Rab Zayda, invited him to join him for the Suda, for the meal, for Purim. And it says they got drunk. They both got drunk. And Rabba stood up and Rab Rabzadeh. He slaughtered Rabzadeh. In the morning, he realized what happened. He resurrected him. And the next year, he invited him again. <laughs> How would you like to join me again? Rabzadeh says, I would love to, but no thank you. He says, not every day miracles happen. <laughs> Last year, you were able to resurrect me. This year, I'm not sure. Now, this story is very astonishing. Rabbah's a murderer. He got up and he took a knife and he slaughtered... The, he took the kitchen knife and he, he slaughtered him. You know, like, like, like these Muslims, he chopped off his head. I, I mean, you're not allowed to murder. Well, what, what, I'm, I'm poor and I have to get drunk. But you're not allowed to do something you're prohibited to do. Murder. My mom, uh, the Masha says, God forbid, It means is that he got him so drunk, he got him so sick, that everyone thought that he died. That really answers the question. You're not allowed to murder a Jew, but, but, to, uh, but to make him so sick, you are allowed to. It's also a mitzvah in the Torah. You're not allowed to do damage to your friend. How could the rabbi do, do something so negative? And you can't say that the Gemara is not literal. It's one of these stories, it's an exaggeration. No, because many Rishonim, the Ran and the Murr bring the opinion of Rabbi Nefrayim who says that the reason why the Gemara is bringing the story is to dispute the Rava. Rava is saying that a Jew has to get drunk until you don't know the difference between Haman is cursed and Mardukha is blessed. So, the Gemara is bringing the story to tell you that no, we don't follow Rav's opinion because look what happened. Look what happens when you get drunk. So, you see, now nobody accepts this opinion. It's a lone opinion. The halacha is clear, like Rava, a Jew is obligated to drink and put him until you don't know the difference between murder. is Blessed Muhammad's Christ. So obviously, all the Rishonim learned, the Gemara is bringing a story either to disprove the law of Rava or to prove the law of Rava. So, so when the Gemara is bringing a story in connection with Halacha, this, these are not exaggerations. It means literally. Which begs the question, how can you say what happened? He murdered him. Killed him. What's going on? So I remember the Rebbe explained, explained the story. Uh, unbelievable. The Rebbe explained it's like we find by Nod of a Navi Nod of Naviyu entered into the Holy of Holies and they were drunk and there you also have the same question Moshe tells Aharon that Nod of Naviyu are holier than we are Bikray Vaya Kaddish. he's holier than we are so, so what they entered drunk they went um, they went to a second avenue bar and they got plastered and they entered the all these the answer is, as the commentaries explain, as the Shalot says, that we find that great people, great tzaddikim, great chassidim, you know, when a person drinks, the Talmud says, when a person drinks, the secrets come out, just like wine is first found in the grape and then it's, it, it it's pressed out of the grape or the ferments from the grape, so too, the, when a person drinks wine, the nature of wine is it brings out everything that's on the inside. And it strengthens your mind and it gives you the ability to go very deep inside. So the great tzaddik and the great chassizim, when they drank, literally when they drank, it expanded their mind and they were able to access, and able to understand, and go very deep into the deepest parts of the Torah. Which usually they were unable to access, but, but when they were in a, in a great mood, and they were, after the saying, It expanded their mind, and they were able to really reveal the deepest parts of the Torah. And this is what happened with Nadav and The Torah says literally that they drank. When the Torah says they drank, it means they drank. Because we find in the Torah, right after that, Aaron was told, Hashem told Aaron, don't drink, you're not allowed to enter into the, into the temple while you're drunk. So, because this was a response, they died because they drank. So it means literally. But why did they drink? Not that they drunk because they, they, they wanted to get drunk. They drank, and when they drank, they were able to access the deepest levels. The deepest levels of mysticism, Kabbalah, and therefore they reached a level of kloisa nefesh, they reached a level of ecstasy. That their soul, they got so excited, they got so excited about godliness, that their soul literally left their body, it flew away. They, they couldn't contain their soul anymore in the body. As the Torah says, they died, because they came close to Hashem. How did they get close to Hashem? They, they got drunk. And this is the story of Rabbi and Rabbah, they both got drunk. And because they got drunk, they reached the level of they reached the level of ecstasy. They reached such a level that they that Rabbah expired. He got so excited, he expired. Why didn't Rabbah expire? Because Rabbah was great. That's his name, Rabba. Rabba means big. Zedra in Aramaic is small. Rab Zedra wasn't on the same level as Rabba, so Rabba was able to handle it. Rabba, they both got drunk. And it was Rab Zedra's drunkenness that contributed to his death. Not only Rabba, but Rabba is the one who overwhelmed Rab Zedra with such insights. Rab Zedra got got so excited that he literally flew away. Usually, that's not a good thing. Because God wants us to live. You're not allowed to allow yourself to expire. That was the sin of Nadav and Aviyah. They allowed themselves to expire. They didn't stop. So how did the Rabbah allow Rav to reach a level where he, he totally expired? The answer is very simple. Rabbah knew the next morning, it comes time to get, wake up in the morning, I'll, I'll, I'll resurrect him, what's the big deal? So, I have the best of both worlds. On Purim, you reach a level of ecstasy without any limits. loyada, you reach a level, go beyond all your limits. Ay, Hashem want us to live in this practical world the next morning he's he'll be the faminian Don't worry, I'll make sure, I'll guarantee it. So it's not he took a knife and he cut him and he bled him and they they celebrated purim in the highest and the most ultimate level, in the most optimal level. And therefore you led him to a level of close Nefesh of ecstasy the next year we have invited them back that was a wonderful thing we had last year going <laughs> not nothing negative let's do it again Abzai says I would love to but you see you can't rely on mercy because this time you succeeded last year you succeeded in, in coaxing my soul back but once the soul leaves the body there's no guarantees that the soul will want to go back is I'm worried, I'm afraid. And my soul will not want to go back. So one day a year on Purim, a Jew has to go beyond his limits. You have to express your total dedication to Hashem. And that's the deepest meaning when Talmud says you have to drink until you don't know the difference between Mardukai is blessed and Haman is cursed. So, what does it mean? You don't know the difference. It means that you reach a level in which your whole essence becomes godly. And that's why Purim is called Pur. Pur is the lot, the drawing of the lots. Drawing of the lots is not in your control, it's not logical, it's beyond your mind, beyond your conscious mind. Because a person could be consciously, a person could look holy, speak holy, think holy, and even feel holy. But that's just your conscious self, which is one little fraction of who you are. What's really going on? Beneath that consciousness. What's going on in your subconscious? What's really going on? Where are you really at? I don't know. You can have a person who externally is perfect. But give him a little shake. Give him a little... And you don't know what happens. Rabbi Yochanan, Kohen Gadol was a high priest for 80 years and then he lost it. He became a heretic, tzaduki. Stop believing in the oral Torah. Something shakes you in life. And then suddenly you reveal a whole different person. Underneath that conscious self, there's a whole different reality going. Purim. The Jewish people were shaken to the core. And they came through in flying colors. Meaning that their Judaism wasn't just skin deep, superficial, external, behavioral. It came from the very core and essence. They had the option. They could have just converted, bowed down, assimilated, disappeared. No. They stood out, risking their life endangering their life. Because it touched them to their core. They expressed that their essence is Jewish. This is a level that's beyond knowledge. Knowledge is very superficial. Knowledge is your conscious self. Your whole conscious self is one tiny fraction of who you are. You're, you have 120 trillion cells. Your conscious self is one little fraction. The Talmud says sleep is one-sixtieth of death. What happens when you sleep? You're not conscious. That's the only thing that changes. So your whole conscious self is one-sixtieth of who you are, One the tip of the tip of the iceberg. It's nothing. Who are you really? What's really going on? I don't know. And you don't know. Purim was a moment of truth. This was the test. Hashem shook the Jewish people to their core and essence. Every Jew was going to be wiped out, annihilated. It was challenged. His very existence was challenged. And what came out as a result? The Jewish people reaffirmed their Jewishness, received their Jewishness, absorbed it, revealed their essence, their sacrifice. Their true essence. This is a level that's beyond knowledge. This is not playing. This is not acting. This is not external. This is not superficial. This is not religion. This is not compartmentalized. This is pure essence. And there's twice a year when the essence of a Jew is revealed: on Yom Kippur, which is also associated with the drawing of the lots, atonement, the holiest day of the year, and Purim. At Purim, it's even holier, even more dramatic. Yom Kippur the Jewish people received the Torah the second set of tablets but when did they truly receive the Torah It's on prayer. so that's the deepest meaning you reach a level ad la yada. you reach a level where you don't know it's beyond knowing there is no I that knows there is no ego there is no I it's your essence so when you reach a level where you're so drunk you reach a level where you're not even aware you're not even conscious and then you choose over when you shake a person up and you really expose his true inner self and then you choose the right thing because it's your essence it's who you really are it's not an act it's not a facade because if Judaism was just an act and a facade it could not have survived for 3800 years it could not have survived Hitler's and pogroms and destructions and. You know. so Purim was the test God forbid the Jewish people would not pass the test, that would have been the end of Judaism. Mount Sinai was still a question mark. For the next thousand years, it was still a question mark. Is this for real? Or is this not? Purim answered that question once and for all. This is for real. This marriage is for real. This relationship is for real. Our Jewishness is for real. It's our core. It's our essence. It's beyond the level of knowledge. Beyond the level of awareness. Beyond the level of ego, of consciousness. It, it touches our very essence. One day a year, this powerful energy is fully unleashed and fully revealed. When a Jew can access this level, when you can be a Jew and celebrate your Jewishness and dedicate yourself to Hashem for, the, for these 24 hours of Purim, just celebrate your relationship with Hashem without any limits, and your relationship with your fellow Jew, your love for your fellow Jew, without any limits, and your relationship to Torah without any limits. And this is expressed and your hatred of Amalek, your hatred of Hamun, your hatred of anything evil and negative, without any limits. And this is expressed through the mitzvot that we fulfill on Purim, by reading the Megillah and stamping out Ambalik, and by f- looking for our friends and expressing our friendship and our caring and our love for each other, and for exchanging food items and finding the, the poor people, those who are so far and distant from us, the other extreme, the opposite extreme of us, and to help them, and to invite them to our meal to celebrate together, and all this is fully expressed at the end when, by the eat, by the eating, and ultimately the drinking, until you reach a level beyond knowledge. So this is not a child's holiday. Talmud says, "Why were the Jewish people going to be annihilated? Why?" So Rabbi Shimba Yechai said because they enjoyed the meal of Achashverosh now the Rebbe asked the question the first answer of Shimon Baichoy is that the reason why the Jewish people are going to be annihilated is because they enjoyed the meal so all the commentaries that's not commensurate to the crime even if they ate non-kosher firstly Achashverosh gave them whatever they wanted so if they wanted the glot kosher, I'm sure they gave them glot kosher. <laughs> Whatever they wanted. The best kosher wines, the best glot kosher meal. So who even says it? And even if they did eat non-kosher, so for that they deserve to die. Every man, woman, and child. So some commentary say it's because at that meal, Ahasuerus took out all the vessels of the temple. Because according to his erroneous calculations, the 70 years were up. They all knew the prophet prophesied after 70 years, God is going to rebuild the second temple. And here, already 70 years passed, and the Jewish people were still in exile. So he said they made a big feast. And the Jewish people participated in that meal, insulting Hashem, insulting. So for that, they deserve to die. but how about the children the infants what did they they say and also the language in Hashem Mechoy said they enjoyed the meal it doesn't say that they were because of the vessels of the temple it says that they enjoyed the meal so the Rebbe explains beautifully the Rebbe says the dynamic that was happening here the real dynamic is the Jewish people are as a sheep one sheep surrounded by 70 wolves So according to nature, the Jewish people have no right to exist, cannot survive. How can one sheep surrounded by 70 ferocious wolves survive? It's a miracle. There is no logical or natural explanation for Jewish survival and existence. What happened in the story of Purim, the Jewish people became very comfortable and complacent. They were very successful in Persia. And they had connections with the king. And they felt safe and secure. Why? Not because of the shepherd who was watching them. They felt safe and secure because the UGA and Federation and connections and APAC. And we, we own this congressman and we own this congressman and we have, we have this. We, we have connections with the palace. Look, we were invited to the meal. That's what the the Talmud says. Then they enjoyed. Look, we're somebody. We've arrived. We're safe and secure. We have political connections. It wasn't a punishment. It was a consequence. You can't survive for a moment. You're going to play by the rules of nature? A Jew plays by the rules of nature. It completely backfires. Look at Israel. Israel today has been playing by the rules of nature since Oslo. It has completely backfired. Israel is the pariah of the world. They treat Israel like the punching bag of the world. A chutzpah telling Jews not to build bedrooms and houses. And Israel complies. And then God forbid his family is wiped out. Because of Jewish weakness. Every time a Jew succumbs to this weakness, we pay the price. If you want to play by nature, God says, you don't stand a chance. The nations of the world are going to spit you out. They despise you. You play by nature. By nature, you have no right to exist, as all the nations of the world are saying now. They call Israel a mistake. Israel should never exist. The lefties say it openly. They treat Israel as if the whole Israel is illegitimate. You don't have a right to exist. By nature? You're going to start arguing UN, Balfour. You don't have a right to exist. And they're right. You have no right to exist. The only way a Jew can exist is only because the shepherd protects us. We're one sheep surrounded by 70 wolves. So when we have a relationship with the shepherd, then we are guaranteed our survival. And this was the whole story of Purim. This was the whole point. What did Esther do when she found out? Mardukai tells her, you, you must intervene. It's for this moment that God set you up to be the queen. And she says, but I wasn't called for the king. or for 30 days, if I just appear, he's going to kill me. And Mardukai says, you have to risk your life. You have to try. So what does she do? He says, "Fast," and I'm going to join you in this fast. And this is how we know that Esther was a prophetess because she told them to fast on Pesach. They did not have a Seder that night that year. The Jews did not have a Seder; they fasted. A prophet has a right to abrogate to nullify a mitzvah in the Torah if it's if for you know for that moment. She told Mordechai, "If there's not, we're not going to." fast, there won't be any Pesah. there won't be any Jews left. There will never be another Pesach. And she fasted, according to some, for 72 hours. The fast was three days, according to some, it was a 72-hour fast. Now, if she's trying to seduce the king, you think that's a wise idea, to fast for 72 hours? She should have gone to the spa, (laughs) should have called the, the beauty beauticians, the beauty... She has to go to the king. She has to seduce the king. It's counterproductive. But this is the whole story of Purim. Esther realized this was the mistake of the Jews. We have a Jew in the White House. We have a Jewish queen. We have nothing to worry. We're safe and secure. We're wealthy. We're rich. We're influential. We're billionaires. We're invited to the White House. We're invited to party. We're in. We've arrived. We're the big machers. Came along, put them and showed you nothing. They turned against them. The intelligentsia, the whole nation turned against them. Treated them with disdain and disgust. A pariah. And like Hitler and HaShemesh, they wanted to annihilate every last Jew, every man, woman, and child. And it wouldn't help, according to some, according to the Jewish, it wouldn't help if they converted, just like in Hitler's time. Just destroy and annihilate every Jew. The self-hating Jew, the religious Jew, all, all the same. And what was the salvation? Where did the salvation come from? When the Jew recognizes that we don't play by nature. We are a sheep surrounded by 70 wolves. The Jew doesn't operate on a natural level. There's nothing natural about the Jew. From the very first Jew that was born, Isaac, was born to a 90-year-old 90, 90 mother, to a 100-year-old father. Nothing about the Jew is logical. Nothing about the Jew is rational. Everything about the Jew is miraculous. That is our nature. And the more miraculous, the more, the more connected we are, and the, the more we deepen our relationship with Hashem. That's the only thing that can guarantee our success in this physical, material world. And that's what happened. And that's why Esther knew, of course, I have to operate in a natural way. I have to be responsible. Of course you need diplomacy. You have to operate in a natural way. But that's just something I have to do. That's, not, that's just a symptom. Where does the help come from? From Hashem and Hashem only. And therefore, this is a wake-up call to deepen our relationship with Hashem. Awaken our relationship with Hashem. To make it a vibrant, healthy, powerful relationship. A relationship that comes through clearly. A two-way street relationship. And the more clear and the healthier and the more vibrant, the more intense, the deeper this relationship is, that will translate into success. She knew if she fasts for three days, 72 days, and she prays and repents and, and awakens and stirs her soul and the entire Jewish people, then when she goes, she will succeed. As she did, it was a miracle. because was not in the mood. But miraculously, when he saw her, he extended his wand.. He touched. He said, I'll give you half of my kingdom. So this is the way, this is the story of Purim. A Jew, you want to be successful in the physical world, in the material world, in the world of nature. Purim happened naturally. The miracle happened in the natural way. You want to succeed in the world of nature, not only in the spiritual realm. In the world of diplomacy, in the world of Washington, in the world of newspapers, in the world of media, in the world of PR, you want to succeed financially, economically, materially, spiritually. You want to succeed. There's only one way. Primarily, our primary focus has to be our healthy relationship with Hashem. And the deeper and the healthier and the more vibrant our relationship with Hashem, that will translate that whatever we do, and we act in a responsible way, it will succeed. And the Goyim will respect us. Achashveder took the house of Haman and transferred it to Mordechai. So that's what the Baal Shem Tov said, the Megillah is not happening then, it's happening today because the lesson of Purim is so relevant today. Personally, in our personal lives, individually, if we want to succeed in our own personal life, to, to succeed materially, and also collectively, the Jewish people collectively, and Israel, we have to remember, the only way we're going to succeed is by connecting with Hashem. If we stood up to the whole world and said, God gave the land of Israel to the Jewish people forever and ever. And the only thing that matters to us is what Hashem says. And this is the reality. And if we do that, and we, we are strong, and that relationship is clear, and we speak clearly for all the nations of the world to hear in clear language, the nations of the world will give us a standing ovation. And they would respect us and be in awe of us. Instead, today they treat us like this is the story of Purim and it's so actual and so real today we need to be the Mardukhai the gathers, the Esther the gathers of the Jewish people and reminds us and awakens us what this is really all about the inner dynamic, what's really going on and what's going to where our salvation will come from where our help will come from and our success physical success, material success this is the most beautiful part of the whole Megillah. This is what succeeded. Not the simulationism and not political connections and diplomacy. And It's the internal. This is the life of a Jew. This is the strength of a Jew. And then the whole, all the Goyim were in awe of the Jewish people. And Mardukai was paraded down the streets. And Haman, Haman was forced to parade Mardachai down the streets. And to acclaim him before everyone. Publicly acclaim The enemies of Israel, the enemies of Jews, will be the ones who will parade and be proud and acclaim Israel. We have to be Mordechai, the nation of who was called the nation Amah Yehudi, Yehudim, why are they called Yehudim? Mordechai was a Benjaminite. Yehuda is from the tribe of Judah. Because Yehuda means someone who admits, bows down to Hashem, and doesn't bow down to anyone else. A Jew has to be strong. Mardukai, the nation of Mardukai, who doesn't bow down. We don't bow down before foreign influences. And we don't bow down. We have to remember that although God sent us into exile, and we have to reckon with the nations of the world, and we are loyal citizens. However, when it comes to matters of Torah... We are never in exile. No nation on earth has the power to tell a Jew not to put on tefillin. No nation on earth has the power to tell a Jew not to keep kosher. And no nation on earth has the power to tell a Jew that Israel does not belong to the Jewish people, that God forbid there's going to be a foreign state in the land of Israel. There never was and there never will be. And a Jew, we are, we are the nation of Mordechai. We don't bow and we don't bend to pressure. And the more proud, pride, proud we are, and the stronger we are, the more connected we are, and we don't go with our own strength, we go with the strength of Hashem, then the nations of the world will honor us, be in awe of us, respect us. I'm happy birthday. <laughs>